Hi, Kindred Spirits. Welcome back to Kindred Spirits Book Club, where three grown-ass ladies geek out about Anne of Green Gables. I'm Kelly Gurner, and today I am joined by two wonderful co-hosts, Reagan Duffy and Brenna Clark Gray. Hi, Reagan. Welcome, Brenna. Hi, I'm waving like people can hear a wave on the audio. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's a visual medium. She's waving everyone. (laughs) Well, let's introduce you guys to Brenna. So we invited Brenna because she has her PhD in Canadian literature and as well a lifelong fandom of all things Anne. Her favorite Anne book is Anne's House of Dreams, and she is a professor at a regional university in the interior desert of British Columbia. She also co-hosts the young adult literature podcast, Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. Welcome, Brenna. Hi, so glad to be here. So much fun. Well, listeners... You guys may not remember, but way back in our very first episode, which honestly, Kelly, I don't think I've ever re-listened to that. I've re-listened to all of our other episodes, <laughs> I don't but think not I our first one. Listen to it. <laughs> Kudos to everyone who's still hanging in there after that first episode. <laughs> Back then, Kelly and I mentioned that we became friends on a fancy soap internet forum. And then we became friends in person when Kelly moved back to Los Angeles and there were fancy soap internet forum meetups. As you do. Well, we also met Brenna on that fancy soap forum too, still paying dividends. It's true. It does sound crazy when you say it out loud. Just <laughs> It sounds crazy, but also this was like in 2005 and that was a really the heyday of those mm-hmm. old forums. And it's mm-hmm. funny, as I kind of like move through the world, I feel like I run into more and more people who are like, oh no, I loved forums. That was like such a golden age of the internet. And I'm still friends with my forum friends. For me, the most embarrassing part is not the forum part. It's the soap part. That's so expensive, that soap, you guys. Holy God. And it wasn't good. It really wasn't. I never buy any more. It dried out my skin. I remember there were like the people who would just buy so much that they could never even imagine using. Like you think about it now and like we're all middle class white ladies who probably all care about sustainability and stuff. It's just, it's kind of horrifying to think about like the level of hoarding that was happening in that space. You're never going to use this in your lifetime. Like what is even the point at a certain time? We're coming up on almost 20 years ago. Does that sound (laughs) right? For me, yeah. In any case, we are so glad that we can mine this deep internet moment for Brenna to come back and geek out with us about Anne. So Brenna, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Anne and especially relevant for this episode. How do you feel about those three books that inspired the mini series we're going to talk about? So that's Avonlea, Anne of the Island and Windy Poplars. Yeah. So I don't remember when I first read the Anne stories. They were just always a part of my growing up. Every summer we would go to the Maritimes. My grandparents lived in Nova Scotia and my dad had this good friend in New Brunswick and we would kind of like hop and then we would always end up at this cottage that my mom's friend owned in PEI and we'd stay there for a week. And every year I made my brother go to the musical. Like I made everybody go, but I was dragging my brother to the musical. So I've seen it like, I don't know, a billion times. And I remember one year my brother was finally like, no, he's like 15. He was like, absolutely not. We're done with this. So it's always been a part of my growing up. I like Anne of Avonlea and Anne of the Island. I, I find Anne of Winnie Poplar's so boring. <laughs> it just makes me mad. I find it so, so boring. My favorite is Anne's House of Dreams. So I kind of like, I love Anne of Green Gables and I've taught Anne of Green Gables a million times. So I have a, just a different kind of relationship to that book now. I feel like I know everything about it. Anne's House of Dreams, I still love just like as a fan. Uh, and everything in between is kind of like, they're fine. But I'm just waiting to get to the House of Dreams every time I read through those other three. I love that you're such a House of Dreams stan. We can't wait to to have you back and explain to us everything you love about it. Something about Anne and Gilbert finally getting together. Like, 
it's very satisfying to me because it takes such an awfully long time. It takes five books before they get married. Okay, so Brenna, we recently had the chance to rewatch the 1987 miniseries Anne of Green Gables, the sequel, which for some reason I always thought was called Anne of Avonlea or like the continuing story of Anne of Green Gables. I don't know. I feel like there was a different name for it when I was a kid. So I don't know if that's because it was marketed differently in the United States, but the official name, according to Wikipedia, seems to be Anne of Green Gables, the sequel, which... Well, it does go by both names, because if you look on the Sullivan Productions website, it's still listed as Anne of Avonlea, but it's also called Anne of Green Gables, a sequel. So nobody's misremembering. I think they marketed it a couple of different ways. Yeah, and it was definitely Anne of Avonlea for the American market and for the Disney like screening. The original CBC broadcast title was Anne of Green Gables, the sequel. It's also its international title. And I think that's why it's like Anne of Green Gables, Anne of Green Gables, the sequel, Anne of Green Gables, the continuing story. Like, I think that's the, oh, the pattern that they're going for. That's like the official um, trajectory. Yes. So listeners may remember Anne of Green Gables, the sequel, as a four-part miniseries. What Reagan and I watched was actually a four-hour-long movie, but this is the one that's loosely based on Anne of Avonlea, Anne of the Island, and Anne of Windy Poplars. And we mean loosely. Kevin Sullivan, who wrote and produced <laughs> the first Anne of Green Gables miniseries for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in 1985, was commissioned again by the CBC, as well as PBS and the Disney Channel, to develop a sequel. He wrote, directed, and produced the miniseries, and honestly, I think we might have some comments about this and specifically his characterizations of Anne and romance but you know I digress we'll get there I don't really remember the first time I watched this one but I know when I was a kid it was in a really heavy rotation on the Disney Channel and I think it was because the Disney Channel was promoting Road to Avonlea and so they had this one on all the time as like a lead into that series which ran on Disney Channel for ages and was also like a big staple of my childhood so I definitely watched it I don't think I liked it quite as much as I liked the first Anna Green Gables movie but it was definitely in the air Reagan what about you do you remember the first time you watched this one I also do not remember the first time I watched it. I was definitely old enough that by the time I saw it, I had already read the books that it's based on. And I was already horrified by the liberties it took from the source material. So this might also be where I developed my distaste for non-canon adaptations and fan fiction <laughs> because it didn't have the same emotional hold on me because I remember constantly picking it apart. Except for the iconic romantic moment right at the end because that moment lived in my head and my heart as the pinnacle <laughs> of romantic fulfillment for most of my young adulthood. How about you, Brenna? When did you watch this? So in Canada, it's always aired as two two-hour movies. So as opposed to the four mm. one-hours that you guys saw, that was the original cut on the CBC. And they always ran it back-to-back -back nights. And it premiered about two years before the launch of Road to Avonlea. That was a huge part of the, my entertainment landscape growing up. It was, for a long time, the highest-rated drama on Canadian television. It got two million viewers a week, like we like our Road to Avonlea. And so it's all in the same universe. It's all the same actors. So for me, I think they mushed together in my head head a oh, lot, like in terms of who yeah. was where. So I don't remember the first time I watched it. It was definitely sort of staple Christmas viewing. So the CBC used to do this thing where like the three weeks leading up to Christmas, they showed movies every night, which in the days before cable in rural areas was a huge deal. And so often Anne of Avonlea was part of the rotation. So you'd watch it on back-to-back -back nights during the weeks before Christmas. So it's funny because it's very summery as a series. That one scene when they're in Boston in the snow is hilarious because the trees are still green, but there's snow. That's not a thing that happens. Um, oh, that's but funny. I didn't even notice that. Oh, yeah. It's like everything is like beautiful and green. There's one, it, there's like one red tree and everything else is beautiful and green. And then there's like fake <laughs> snow everywhere. Uh, so I associate it strongly with the Christmas holidays, even though it is absolutely not a Christmas movie in any way, shape or form. In fact, 
don't you think it's interesting that they go to Boston during the break from school in the wintertime, which is obviously Christmas, but at no point does anybody celebrate Christmas? And at no point is anybody like, it's kind of weird that you're here for Christmas and not at Green at Gables. Green Gables. Yes, that <laughs> yep. is weird. Five minutes later... She's done with her year in Kingsport or whatever, and she's back at Green Gables because it's summertime. Like, just the timeline does not check out at all. Listen, no. you guys, if you look, don't don't start looking for plot holes because you will fall in and you won't come out. <laughs> this story is so full of, like, and that's always been something that's been a problem for me. I think that's part of my problem with adaptations is we start getting the plot holes that you don't have in books in that way. And I just, it really bothers me. Yeah, this this one's a mess. So <laughs> listeners, we're going to skip some of our regular segments just because we've got a lot of material to cover today. And we're just going to jump right into Story Club. And for Story Club, we are going to attempt to recap this behemoth of a movie, or maybe chimera is the right word. I think, <laughs> is that the beast that's made out of a bunch of different animals? Because that is this movie. So let's start by talking a little bit about the basic structure of the miniseries and some of the structural differences, because it really changes Anne's arc from the books. So the first thing is we are compressing Anne's experiences quite a bit here, which makes sense for watching a movie or a miniseries, because we're going to take three books and nine years of Anne's life and compress it down to about a year's worth of action. I mean, for what it's worth, I didn't realize that those three books were really nine years of Anne's life. Are they really almost a whole decade? Yeah. So she's got two years at Anne of Avonlea, where she teaches at the Avonlea School. So that's from 16 to 18. Four years at Redmond in Anne of the Island. And then three years at Windy Poplars. And then she's still only like 25. Amazing. So even if when we start this movie, if we assume that the two Avonlea years happened already before the movie starts, we're still taking seven years of Anne's life and making it about one year. And you guys also have to remember that these productions move the setting from the late Victorian era up to the Edwardian era, primarily for the look of like the pastel soft Edwardian fashions and hair. Because that was like the fashion in the 80s, of course. Laura Ashley was making some bank. And also then by continuing story, it's the First World War for some reason. Don't even Does that work timeline-wise? I mean, again, we said that we can't poke plot plot holes through this, but I am starting to wonder if that works (laughs) timeline-wise. No, okay, here's why it doesn't. Because per Wikipedia... This miniseries starts in the late spring of 1902, as Anne is, and we start with Anne winding up the school year as a teacher in Avonlea, and then finish about the end of summer 1903. World War I doesn't start till 1914. That's like another 10 years later. And I'll save my rant on this whole thing until we actually talk about continuing story, but just the importance of World War I in the Anne universe and like Montgomery's own life. She's writing a lot of this as World War II is kicking off. The trauma that inspired for her. And then Sullivan's just like, yeah, let's sing Gilbert to war. What the hell? <laughs> World War One is so important for Rilla of Ingleside. It's so important for like the history of the Blythe family. It plays like such an important emotional core for that book. It just makes me mad. Everything, whatever. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. And everything <laughs> about that movie really makes me mad. <laughs> yes, because getting back to this, there's a lot that has to happen in 14 months worth of story here. So we ditch a ton of stuff that happens in the books. And of course, one of our main critiques of this adaptation is how rushed Anne's growth arc feels. So 
We're basically starting at the end of Avonlea, and Anne has taught two years at the Avonlea School. And then, instead of Anne going to Redmond for four years, Marilla encourages her to leave Green Gables and have new experiences and pursue her ambitions by taking an offer of working at a ladies' college in Kingsport. So Anne works in Kingsport for a year, and that experience stands in for both Anne of the Island and Windy Poplars. And the characters from those books are mashed into entirely new characters or left out, or some of their lines are instead given to characters we already know from Anne of Green Gables. And of course, some of those changes have to happen to get anything that is remotely viewable in four hours. And some of those changes work fairly well. For instance, our beloved Miss Stacy comes back and she is the reason that Anne is offered the job in Kingsport at the Kingsport Ladies College. And Miss Stacy takes the place of Rebecca Dew and the widows of Windy Poplars. She stands in for Anne's college friends in Anne of the Island. And this works. I mean, I really miss getting to see Philippa Gordon on the screen and Patty's place. But from a storytelling perspective, it makes a lot of sense. It's a good move instead of introducing a bunch of brand new characters. I mean, I wish we had Patty's Place. I wish we had Anne's friendships in Anne of the Island. I love that so much, but I'm fine with Miss Stacy doing this kind of heavy lifting. I actually like that we get to see sort of the mm-hmm. development of their relationship from teacher-student to mentor-mentee. And I think you could even see maybe toward the end of this movie, almost like a, a true friendship of equals coming between them. So that's nice. And getting to spend more time with Miss Stacy is great. We also mash up several of Anne's students into the made-up character of Emmeline Harris. So Emmeline is both little Elizabeth and Sophie Sinclair from Windy Poplars and a little bit of Paul Irving from Anne of Avonlea. And Emmeline's grandmother, Mrs. Harris, is a mix of the terrible Mrs. Gibson, Elizabeth's grandmother, Mrs. Campbell, and the elderly Pringle ladies of Maplehurst. So it works-ish. I think they're doing a lot here with Mrs. Harris, and they probably could have just skipped any of the bits related to the Pringle ladies. Those parts weren't necessary. It does speak to how off the pacing is in the film, though, doesn't it? Because like you're trying to compress all this time, and yet we spend so much time with Emmeline Harris. <laughs> well, okay, so let's move into some things that work less well. So one of the things is we get rid of Gilbert's romantic rival, Royal Gardner, and we replace him with the new character of Morgan Harris, Emmeline's father. So Morgan Harris is doing the work of Elizabeth's father as well as Roy Gardner. And this is not good, partly because his personality is very different from Roy. The point of Roy is that he is Anne's childhood romantic ideal in the flesh. He's tall, dark, handsome. He's melancholy and poetic. He does lots of textbook romantic gestures, but he doesn't necessarily bring the spark or have a sense of humor. It turns out that once Anne gets what she thought she always wanted, it doesn't feel right to her. And Anne's relationship with Roy is character defining. She learns that her starry-eyed romantic imaginings are no match for a love grown from genuine admiration and friendship. So this character is no Roy. Morgan Harris while also handsome and rich, is entirely different. He meets Anne when he helps her collect her papers on the beach, and then he nearly runs her off the road with his motor car. Morgan is both neglectful and overprotective of Emmeline. He's sarcastic and impatient, and he and Anne fight and disagree quite a bit, which I think is supposed to be sparky. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be giving the audience a bit more of like that rivals to lovers story that Anne and Gilbert started in Anne of Green Gables, but it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me at all. They have like no chemistry. They have yes. no chemistry whatsoever. 
Yeah. Well, and there's a really big age gap between Anne and Morgan. Anne is 18, maybe 19, if we're being generous about how many years she taught in Avonlea. Morgan is old enough to have a daughter who is at least 12 or 13 years old. And it is a big enough age difference that when my daughter Alice, who is watching this with us, sees Morgan flirting with Anne, she yelled, oh, that's sus. The miniseries sets up more like Anne's conflict as being between Morgan, who represents the wealthy city life, and Gilbert representing small rural Avonlea. It's not so much that Morgan is Anne's melancholy, poetic hero the way that Roy was. Yeah, I remember watching this adaptation years ago, like as a kid, right? And I felt like sort of neutral, positive leaning about Morgan Harris. Obviously, we know that Anne isn't going to end up with him, but he did seem like a worthy corner of this sort of love triangle that they're setting up. But watching it recently with you after having done this deep dive into the books and really deeply analyzing Anne's sort of character growth, I hated this character. Um, And I felt like Anne's apparent romantic interest in him showed that Sullivan didn't understand Anne at all. I just don't think that Anne would ever be into him, truly. Like, his life is messy and real. He's kind of a jerk. He's not a knight in shining armor. And if Anne wanted messy and real, if she wanted someone she could spar with, she would be with Gilbert. The only thing that is keeping Anne from Gilbert in these books is her belief that there is like a more perfect life for her. There's an ideal life for her. And it's just out of reach. But if she works hard enough and is good enough, she'll get there, right? And as we've discussed, right, that's a really understandable outlook given that Anne saved herself in childhood by imagining that perfect life. When she's holding out for a romantic ideal like Roy, it makes sense even though she did have true love in Gilbert at her side all along. Sullivan's really young when he makes these. I don't know if you guys ever looked. He's 30 when he makes Anne of Green Gables. Really? Okay, he's 30. not know this at all. Yeah, so he's 30 when Anne of Green Gables comes out. So I guess he's actually younger than that when he makes it. And he's 31 when he makes the sequel. And Oh, Brenna, this is giving me such a different opinion now. And Mm -hmm. it's fascinating to me, right? Because there's so little nuance. And in many ways, it's the exact opposite of as we read the Anne books, because Montgomery is always older than Anne, and she's always sort of casting back into her own experiences and almost like there's a wish fulfillment aspect to the Anne books, right? Where Montgomery's writing the life she wished she had had and she's always older than and she's always wiser than. Mm -hmm. And like Sullivan is not older and wiser than this version of Anne. And so it's almost like he's wrapped up in the love triangle somehow and doesn't actually see who any of these characters are as real people. And I also think there's something weird happening with boundaries throughout this film. Like, even Anne's relationship with Emmeline is weird. Like, they're like girlish best friends one minute, the next minute she's giving parenting advice. She's almost manipulative in the way she deals with Pauline and Mrs. Harris. None of these things feel particularly true to Anne's character so much as like, well, Anne has to get into scrapes. But in Anne of Green Gables, scrapes happen to Anne. Right? Like, yes. Whereas here, Anne is concocting scrapes. Anne is creating many of the scrapes. Like, yes, obviously, the Pringles hate her because she's not a Pringle or whatever, but she really she pushes a lot of buttons and she takes up a lot of space. And I don't mean that in a generous way. She's just kind of like sort of pain in the ass character here. And I just feel like there's something about Sullivan and Anne at this stage of life that he's just not understanding. And as a result, we get a very messy character on screen. I think that's a really good point. It tells me a little bit he doesn't understand what it's like to be a young woman. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what Ella Montgomery, of course, did understand, having been a young woman herself and understanding going through the process of having romantic ideals and then what does a real relationship look like and figuring yourself out. Because you're right, and by this point in the book, she really has a pretty good handle on her temper. Blowing up at Mr. Harrison at the very beginning of Anne of Avonlea is kind of the last time we see Anne's temper get the best of her. And to be fair, he started it, so... <laughs> She's not as impetuous as she was. She's much more mature in a lot of ways. She's not silly. No. And I don't think Sullivan knows how to write her without going back to the well. And I like those specific wells. Like, it's so interesting that, you know, he he's created something that's in many ways quite perfect in the first film. So all he wants to do is go back to those same beats. But the characters are older and in a different stage of life. And it doesn't ring authentic at all. So they've moved around a lot of our favorite moments from all three books, and it mostly works. Some of the best Anne of Avonlea moments still happen. We've dropped Dora and Davy all together. Reagan's excited that. (laughs) (laughs) Real quick, Brenna, how do you feel about Davy and Dora? Oh, they're super irritating. (laughs) (laughs) And then quite a few of Anne's teaching moments from Anne of Avonlea instead happen at the Ladies' College in Kingsport. That's where we get that fireworks in the stove incident. But also, there's an implication here that Anne didn't learn anything in her time teaching in the Avonlea school. Like, she's still this green teacher who never expects students to misbehave and doesn't know what a prank is. Whereas everything we know about the Avonlea schoolhouse is that it's just full of pranksters. Like, that's all that ever... Nobody ever learns anything in that place. It's literally just prank after prank. So apparently Anne has not learned any classroom management skills in this time before arriving at Kingsport. Well, and Reagan and I were talking a lot in one of our episodes where we were talking about the Pringle feud. The fact that Anne knows that she is an effective teacher is one of the ways that she's able to survive the Pringles because they can throw stones, they can cast aspersions about her talent and abilities as a teacher. But she's like, heck no, man. I cut my teeth in the Avonlea schoolhouse. I know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we believe her. We believe that character. So yeah, it is weird in this movie that she just loses all of that authority all of a sudden. Instead of Mr. Harrison, that cow incident involves Mrs. Lynde instead, which sort of works fine. It is still really funny. And then it is ridiculous because all of a sudden Mrs. Lynde and Anne are like back to square one. Anne's writing ambitions are a lot more fleshed out in this movie, which I really like. We see her writing a novel on the beach and then daydreaming while her pages just sort of like drift off. Uh, One thing I think this movie did really well is we get that Rowling's reliable moment pretty early on. Again, we're kind of focused on Anne's ambitions as an author and Anne finds out about it in a really public way. She walks into the general store and they're putting up this huge banner and this display all dedicated to Anne's story and we've got a little pamphlets printed out and the whole thing. So that significantly ups the stakes around Anne's embarrassment and heightens her response accordingly. I think this whole scene really benefits from the adaptation. I know we talked a lot about how Anne's embarrassment about winning the contest, it just doesn't seem that justified in the book, right? It seems like she's blowing it out of proportion. Her own sort of romantic authorial daydreams are just getting in the way of reality. But here, when you can see and kind of feel what it's like when the whole town is celebrating you for something you didn't even want, the indignity of the moment does feel like it makes a lot more sense. I agree. It works well in the film as that moment of disconnect between Anne and Diana too, because Diana's like, all you wanted to do is be published. You're published now. I did this for you. And Anne's like, I wish I was dead. Thank you for this. (laughs) And you can see how hard she's trying. She's like, 
I get why Diana did it. And also I am crushed beyond belief that this is not the way I thought my writing was going to go. And it's a shame that we don't get more Diana in the film because that's the first moment of the growing apart, which it's fine to symbolize that in the marriage to Fred, although Anne is just weirdly super mean about it. But it's more interesting to see how they're diverging in other kinds of ways and they're starting to misunderstand each other in other kinds of ways. Like I I liked that and I'm always disappointed there's not enough Diana in this film. You know, and I'm sad we don't have a great character like Mr. Harrison Mm. in this adaptation. Gilbert gets to give his speech about writing what you know and Anne is just as defensive and offended to Gilbert as she was when Mr. Harrison said them. But because it's Gilbert, it's not just an argument about her writing, it's about their relationship, which again, I think kind of misunderstands Anne's character. At any rate, Anne even says that Gilbert is just as unromantic as Charlie, Moody, and Fred who only want to find a girl who will keep house for them. So that is setting up that a major part of Anne's conflict around Gilbert is about being between her aspirations of being an author and this idea of being a wife. So they're fighting about her writing and his advice, but it's also coded to be fighting about the relationship between the two of them. And while the Anne of this book does write and does have ambitions in that area, she never specifically aims to be a novelist or live solely on her writing. But I guess maybe it just makes more sense to the modern viewer to have Anne's writing be a larger part of her growth arc. Like we want her to have that job. Also, I'd like to point out that when they are arguing, Gilbert smacks her on the butt with his writing crop, which like, not cool, man. Oh, no, I was into it. That definitely wired something for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we skip a great deal of Anne of the Island, which is too bad because one, that's my favorite book or one of my favorite books. And that's also where so much of Anne's growth happens. And instead, we shift the action to Windy Poplars. So it's funny that the book that is most people's least favorite Anne book (laughs) contributes many of the biggest chunks to this miniseries. So why? Why would they do that? I mean, I can only conjecture that someone over at Sullivan has a Morgan Harris fetish. It's cruel that we spend more than an hour with him and we never, ever get to meet Philippa Gordon. We never get to see Patty's place. We never get to see Anne at college and all that great stuff. I definitely think it speaks to your earlier point that Kevin Sullivan did not truly understand Anne and certainly not young adult Anne. Yeah, I think, you know, we've we've talked around this a bunch, but it's just without that growth arc of Anne of the Island and apparently with everything that happened in Anne of Avonlea uh, being like some sort of amnesic episode for Anne, <laughs> we end up with this just still teenaged Anne getting into these scrapey situations, but they're less charming because she's older and in a position of authority. Anne in the book does know better. Yeah. And I think if you're a reader of the books, you've grown by this point to have a a huge amount of respect for Anne and for the person that she has grown into. And so to see all of that sort of turn back in the film, but while she's still like looking after children (laughs) and being in these adult situations, it's frustrating. And then I find her weirdly manipulative in this. It's not that she knows what's best for everybody, because that's kind of Anne's shtick. She always knows what's best for everybody. But it's the way she goes about it in the film here. And I think particularly she's so pushy with Mrs. Harris. Does the picnic need to happen? Is that a thing she needs to make this sick old lady do? And the ways in which she just sort of bulldozes over people's will in this adaptation instead of it being a sort of like, oh, in loving Anne, we came to realize there was a better way to do things, which is sort of the manic pixie dream girl-esque Anne that we know from the books. Here we just have like this kind of rhinoceros with a red wig. One of the things that Reagan and I talked about in one of our previous episodes on Wendy Poplar's about Anne's meddling is that she is 
so subtle. Mm -hmm. There is nothing manipulative about what she does when she is changing people's lives in Windy Poplars. She is reading the room. She has this genius for people is how we often speak about it, where she can kind of understand the bigger picture or the larger motivations. And she can subtly figure out her way through all of these complicated social interactions. And there's just none of that in the movie. And maybe that's too hard to capture on film. I don't know. She's a lot more passive aggressive in a lot Mm -hmm. of her interactions where she's kind of and kind of snarky, which again, the Anne by Anne of Avonlea um, and the island in Windy Poplars, like young adult Anne, is not particularly passive aggressive. In fact, we really remarked that in Windy Poplars, how much more gently direct she often is. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she's kind of sometimes a little mean in the way that she's manipulating people. Well, so here's some of the things that we've drawn from Wendy Poplars for this adaptation. We demote Anne from the principal of the high school to the English teacher, which makes more sense for the time frame of this miniseries since she's only 18 and she does not have a BA. Can I interject here? Because yeah. Marilla says to Anne, because Anne makes that yet another, oh, I bet you wish I was a boy. It's like, yeah, we're all over this, Anne. But she makes that comment again in the garden. And Anne says, did a boy take the Avery Prize? Did a boy earn a BA? And I was like, did, did Anne earn a BA in this universe. What is happening? You know what? Okay, you know what? I think this is what because Gilbert references it too. He says something about you've been avoiding me since graduation. I think what they basically did is just have Anne and Gilbert correspondence course their way through in the two years. Maybe they make it four years. I don't know. But like it's not clear at all. It's not clear. No. Because she never goes away to college. I know at the end of Green Gables, the movie, she says that she and Gilbert are gonna keep up their studies by correspondence course. I didn't know they were going to get a whole ass degree no you could do that then but maybe you could virtual schooling it was ahead of its time you know But either way, she's not exactly qualified to be a principal at this point. So instead, Catherine Brooke is the principal and Anne is the new English teacher. And she lives at the school with the out-of-town boarders instead of at Wendy Poplar's, which, again, that kind of streamlining makes sense and more or less works for the story they want to tell. I think it's interesting that they make her like an RA. Yeah, basically. basically. <laughs> um. Which, and not a very good one. No, a terrible one, actually. This is not the Anne, by the way, who saved Minnie Mae from certain death, right? Right. The girl who was cool in a crisis? Yeah. We still have all the, like, Pringle stuff and the nonsense with the Pringles making Anne's life miserable. We have Jen Pringle, who's awful. She's more than just disrespectful and insubordinate. She's outright cruel, not just to Anne, but the other non-Pringle students, especially to Emmeline Harris. You can really tell that they're giving her the Regina George treatment here. So, you know, classic mean girl. So there are stakes to the whole Mary Queen of Scots play because somehow Anne gets into this absolutely Mm -hmm. ridiculous scrape with Emmeline and another child, Essie. So this is when they're breaking into the school storage shed in the middle of the night to get Essie's bike. This is so dumb. It shows that the writers had no idea who Anne was at this point mm-hmm. in the story. It's supposed to tie in that moment from Anne of Avonlea where Anne and Diana are canvassing for the AVIS and she falls inside the chicken coop, which is like a really silly scene, but it's ultimately harmless because the only thing injured is like Anne's pride in the chicken coop. But in this adaptation, they have Anne physically endangering two children for no reason. Uh, she simply would never do that. She would never do that at any age. She wouldn't have done that in Anne of Green Gables. And by the time she's Wendy Poplar's age, she wasn't getting into scrapes like this. No. Also, she's like weirdly mean about Essie too. So Essie's thing is she faints when she's overwhelmed by oh, a situation. Right. Yes. And Anne is not nice about it. Anne's like, oh, pull yourself together, Essie. It's like, what? 
who is this Anne? What is happening? Like she's roping this poor child who's like 11 years old into helping her climb down some bed sheets into a shed. No wonder Essie is freaking out. I kind of freak out. The implication here is that Anne is as afraid of Catherine Brooke as the students are and that she has no authority when indeed she has total authority over the girls after school hours. We've been told that by Catherine Brooke. The idea that she wouldn't just go and get the key and open the shed is dumb. It's all so dumb. It is. It really is. And then this whole kerfuffle with the shed results in wealthy Mr. Harris yanking Emmeline from the school because wouldn't you? If a yes, teacher or a child was just endangered by the person who was supposed to be protecting her, I absolutely would do that. It's yeah. not a good school. But he yanks Emmeline from the school and his hefty financial support. So now we've got all of the Pringle parents are complaining about Anne and calling for her removal. So Miss Stacy tells Anne that she'll have to raise enough money to cover the deficit left by Mr. Harris with a school play. Let's put on a play. And then the Pringles won't have a leg to stand on with calling for her removal. So now the school play has to be a success in order for Anne to stay. Emmeline is sent to live with her local grandmother, Mrs. Harris, and henpecked Aunt Pauline. Why was she boarding at the school when her grandmother lives walking distance? Whatever. And so Anne manages to convince Mrs. Harris that she should tutor Emmeline, not just in the part of Mary, Queen of Scots, which Emmeline wanted to play, but in general, to make up for the fact that she's not in school this semester. Tutor her for free. Yeah. And with what time? She's a full-time teacher. She's in charge of the boarding students. She wants to be a writer. She's writing a book, apparently. There's a book that she's written by the end of this movie. <laughs> Where does she find the time to fully tutor Emmeline, charm Mrs. Harris, organize the big picnic with the Harris family and the students from school, and produce and direct a big school play in like two months? <laughs> It doesn't make any logical sense. And this is where like, oh, the plot holes, oh, the plot holes. Anyway, as we remember from Wendy Poplar's, the play succeeds despite Jen's sabotage because Emmeline, who is currently not even a student at the school, steps into the part at last minute. Right. She's not even a student. She's not even a student right now. So the play raises $2,500, right? Which is bananas. It is. I just put it into an inflation calculator. That play raised $91,000. Oh my God. Immediately no. $91,000. With a school play. If only school plays did earn that much money. And you know what else I remember from this? Miss Stacy has Anne charge the parents $25 a ticket. $25 a ticket in 1902. Kelly, the tickets for my child's musical theater performance in the year of our Lord 2023 are $20. $20. $116. <laughs> to see your child in a school play? Mad when they charged us $5 for the dance recital when I'd already paid for dance class. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And this is on top of the tuition that these parents are presumably paying and room and board, probably. Anyway, don't look too close at the plot holes, people. <laughs> mm -mm, mm -mm. But Emmeline's dad is furious, but then he sees, as one does, his child shine on the stage and the school makes $91,000. So the success of the play brings all the Pringles into heel and makes Anne the darling of Kingsport. Because if you can make $91,000 with a single night of a school play, yeah, Why go for teaching it. teaching when she has this capacity to earn money, though? Amazing. Well, and also, if this is the deficit that Morgan Harris's money left, how much is tuition to this school? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's contemporary prices. It's modern day prices. <laughs> 
<laughs> so luckily, Morgan Harris is so impressed. He puts Emmeline back in school due to this. So then they've made the money and they have his money back. And now Morgan Harris is on Anne's side. Now he's a fan of Anne. Oh my gosh. I can't even. All right. So then we are also going to switch up. If you guys remember in Anne of Windy Poplars, the Pringles capitulate to Anne because of the uncovering of a cannibalism story that Anne unearths in the family about, history. about their family history. But somehow what we are going to do here is we're going to relate that to Mrs. Harris's husband. So instead, this is how Anne gets Mrs. Harris to let her tutor Emmeline, which is not particularly satisfactory. And again, causes more plot holes than not with its inclusion. Because Anne has already kind of figured out how to maneuver around Mrs. Harris. She didn't need the cannibalism to force her hand. And Miss Stacy had given Anne the letters saying she should know her enemy meaning the Pringles, but the letters don't have anything to do with the Pringles. You guys, I, I have a hard time <laughs> with like this many kind of plot holes. And then Mrs. Harris is not a Pringle. So we have some very confusing messages about Kingsport society. Like the Harris family is outrageously wealthy, but Emmeline is totally outcast by the rest of the girls. And I don't know, is that an old money, new money fight? Or did they just like make it up for some stakes? I don't know. Yeah, it is. It's convoluted. It's silly. And quite frankly, I don't think the cannibalism storyline got as much screen time as it deserves because <laughs> that's some funny stuff. Listen, either you make the cannibalism a big plot point or you leave it out. You can't do it part of you the You really can't. You can't just have like a stray reference to cannibalism and call it a day. Like that <laughs> does need to be a plot point if you're going to included. So one thing that we did love about this adaptation is we do get to see more of Anne's relationship to Gilbert. We talked in Anne of Avonlea about being disappointed and not getting to see more of what Anne and Gilbert's friendship actually looked like. We knew they studied together and we knew they played the prank of submitting made-up blind items to the newspaper. We knew that they worked together to establish the AVIS, but we didn't really get to see what that looked like, right? That was never on the page, the real like flirtation and friendship between them. And so here we do get to see it. And, you know, it's probably a little more teasing and arguing than book Anne and Gilbert really do. But we get to see Gilbert calling Anne back to reality when they quarrel about her writing. And we see him tease her about submitting her writing to magazines. We see Anne confide in Gilbert about her ambitions and about her disappointment with Diana's engagement to Fred. So it's clear that Gilbert really knows Anne. And it's clear that Anne really values Gilbert as a friend and is proud of his success. One of the biggest changes of this adaptation is the way that Anne's romantic resistance to Gilbert is framed here as being between Gilbert and a career as an author rather than being between Gilbert and Anne's romantic visions. And that tension is obvious from the very beginning. She and Marilla have a conversation following the whole Rowling's Reliable incident and then her fight with Gilbert about writing. And Marilla gets one of our favorite lines from Phil Gordon. She gets to say, you've tricked something out in your imagination that you think is love. But then Anne quickly pivots to making it about her career aspirations. So it's really murky about what exactly it is that's standing between Anne and Gilbert. Right. And talk about all these plot holes. How would marrying Gilbert be a barrier to Anne's aspirations as a writer? Like, tell me how. Because both in the book and in this adaptation, he is incredibly supportive of her writing. I, I can see generally, like marriage, especially at this time, but even still today, right? Marriage forces women in, into doing extra labor. We take on more household labor. We take on more labor in raising children. And all of that takes away from a woman's ability to pursue her passions. But that would be true of any marriage, not specifically marriage to Gilbert. Like Gilbert's more overtly supportive of Anne's writing than Morgan Harris ever is. I mean, I forget, but I, does he even mention her writing after that first scene with all those pages? 
I don't think so. Gilbert is the one who's always pushing Anne to write more and he's cheering her on all the way. What makes me so interested in this, and it's particularly interesting because I don't think Sullivan would have known this. My chronology on like sort of critical Montgomery scholarship isn't great, but the, the family had released versions of the journals as early as the 80s, but they were very redacted, like nothing about her battles with depression or her anti-war sentiment or the difficulties in the marriage or in those journals. So those don't come out until like the 2000s, 2010s, I think. Because what we end up here is like, this is actually Lucy Ma Montgomery's actual anxiety, right? Because she does end up as this woman who's married to a man who deeply resents her literary success, deeply resents her financial independence. Her life is increasingly sort of small and miserable. You know, she leaves her beloved Prince Edward Island for him. She has this life that's totally constrained and circumscribed by a man who doesn't support her literary career. So it's almost like Sullivan has asked backwards, fallen into an actual point here because <laughs> this is this would have been Montgomery's anxiety, even though we don't read it as Anne's. Yeah, so he accidentally had his version of Anne fear what Maud really experienced. And if he yeah. had done that on purpose, hey, props, <laughs> but I don't think he did. Our Anne, book Anne, she wasn't worried about becoming married. She wanted to be a wife and a mom. Those were values that she had. And so this adaptation really makes it huge. And it also uses Diana's engagement and marriage to Fred Wright to highlight Anne's discomfort with an ordinary and realistic romance. I love that Fred is played by a pre-Kids in the Hall, Bruce McCullough. And then we see Dave Foley later as the nerdy principal Anne uses to make Morgan jealous at the dance. It's just funny to me because Kids in the Hall would launch on the CBC in 1988, maybe 89, I think. So they're just such babies. And the whiplash between those two kinds of content is just so dramatic that it makes me laugh every time I remember those two are in this series. When we were watching this, Brenna, I was so annoyed with Anne because she kept negging Fred. Like, yeah, she's so mean. And I thought the actor who played Fred was very kind of cute and appealing. Like, I was so mad at Anne. I thought she was being so unfair to him. Well, she's so unfair to him, but she's also so cruel to Diana through that. I It's, again, a problem with not allowing Anne to grow between the two films because, mm -hmm. yes, I could see impetuous early Anne letting something slip out like this that would make Diana feel awful. And yes, in the book, her feelings about Diana's marriage are deeply complicated, but she's so mean yeah. to both of them. No, and she's, she's much ruder when she finds out that Diana is engaged. She is right in front of Fred and Gilbert, which the real Anne would never. And luckily, though, and this was great, Diana calls her out about it right away. I mean, like, good job, Diana, setting boundaries. But Anne's conflicting feelings about Gilbert are very much, like, highlighted in the discussions, right? You can see that Anne is just projecting all of her stuff with Gilbert onto Diana and Fred in this movie. It's very transparent. So during an engagement party for Diana and Fred, Gilbert proposes to Anne, wild timing, and <laughs> the romantic arc between them is very different than in the book. Anne's rejection in the book, as hard as it is for her to say, is straightforward. She doesn't care about Gilbert in that way. She doesn't make excuses. She says that she loves him as her friend, but not in a romantic manner. And in the movie, a whole bunch of conflicting stuff just pours out of her, right? Gilbert says that she must think he's not good enough for her, but he will be someday. And Anne says, no, he's too good for her. And then all of this that is just not canon to why Anne is really conflicted, right? She says, you want someone who will adore you, someone who will be happy just to hang on your arm and build a home for you. I wouldn't. We'd end up like two old crows fighting all the time. I know I'd be unhappy and I'd wish we'd never done it. 
Then Gilbert says, everyone expects them to marry. Now, Gilbert in the book never cared what other people thought. And so this really changes the tenor of the, his proposal. Like, what is he doing here? What are his motivations? So here, just another place where I am not sure the writers understood Anne, Gilbert, their relationship in the books or anything, really. <laughs> and neither book Gilbert nor adaptation Gilbert ever have insinuated that he would want Anne to be a meek, adoring wife. No! Anne is framing her rejection not as rejecting Gilbert's love that she doesn't want, but it's a whole life that she doesn't want. She's not just rejecting Gilbert. She's rejecting this whole lifestyle that she thinks comes with the proposal. I can kind of see why they're doing this because I think it does feel true to the way a modern audience might look at a woman of that time who is spirited and dreamy and ambitious, you know, a girl like Anne, and expect her to be driven toward a career and understanding that a marriage would have been too confining to her. But that is just not Anne's conflict when it comes to Gilbert in the book. It's less that she's afraid that if she gets married, she'll never be a writer. It's that she can't reconcile her romantic daydreams with a real relationship. And Anne has to grow enough to understand that her daydreams were never rooted in what she actually wanted in her life. So to drag out the misery for Gilbert and Anne in this adaptation, they kind of break the proposal and Anne's rejection into two parts. So later at Diana's wedding, having already turned down Gilbert's proposal at the engagement party, Anne sees Gilbert sitting with someone who is referred to as Christine Stewart. And here's a little gossip about her, much like she does when she's at Redmond. And by the way, where Christine comes from, why Josie Pye and the other Avonlea girls and Gilbert are already friends with her. We don't know. We don't know where she came. <laughs> and then Gilbert follows Anne into the barn when he sees her leave. And he tells Anne that, oh, he and Christine are just friends. Gilbert says he's willing to wait for Anne to be ready for Mary if he thought she cared just a little bit. But Anne says, I'm happy as I am. I won't ever marry. So again, she's thinking about marriage as something that will diminish her, not specifically not wanting to be with Gilbert. And honestly, again, like probably a good critique of how marriage has historically been a way of keeping women's ambitions confined to the home life. But again, not true the way that Lucy Maud Montgomery wrote Anne. Well, and Montgomery goes through the refused proposals and then the person she ends up with is terrible, right? Whereas this is like you reject all these proposals and the person who you end up with is Gilbert. And it was always meant Wonderful. to be this way. Yes. And of course, Montgomery's first love, she never gets to be with her first love. So Anne is supposed to end up with Gilbert because it rewrites all this, all that sadness. Um, but yeah, here it's just like, well, I can't be a writer if I get married. And that does end up being kind of a difficult tension in Montgomery's life. But to see it played out for Anne is sort of the opposite of the point. Well, in here, it's in the this adaptation, Gilbert is the one who says to Anne, he says he thinks that Anne will marry someday. He says, you'll marry all right, some fool who will sit and read Tennyson by the fire, which again, Anne has not said that she's wanted. So Gilbert is the one who's framing the problem as Anne's over-the-top romantic ideals. But the Anne in this adaptation isn't. And then you truly get to see his hurt because he says to Anne, I hope he breaks your heart. And that petty spitefulness feels maybe authentic to the miniseries Gilbert, but not mm. how book Gilbert would ever respond. I mean, we talked about this at length in our Anne of the Island coverage, but like one of the things that makes Gilbert such a great romantic hero is that when she says no, he says okay. Mm -hmm. He leaves her. He believes her when she says that. By the way, so I was trying to find some YouTube clips of these scenes to make sure that I had written it down because I was taking notes in the dark when we were watching this movie. Turns out I couldn't read any of my notes. Oh, um, no. 
So anyway, I was looking through YouTube to try and find these scenes to make sure that I got some of those quotes correctly. I found a YouTube clip that alternates between these two scenes where Anne rejects Gilbert and the Greta Gerwig version of Little Women in which Joe is rejecting Teddy. And you guys, it's practically word for word. Okay, that's really interesting though, because what I was trying to understand, why is Morgan Harris in this movie? Like, what is he doing? The only comparison I could think of that made any sense was Joe March's relationship with Professor Bear in Little Women, because that's in line with this sort of theme where we've got this spirited, ambitious 19th century woman who is eschewing marriage entirely for her art until, of course, she meets the much older, worldly <laughs> intellectual of her dreams. Okay. See, I think that that explains part of what went wrong here. Maybe Kevin Sullivan, well, and we know, I think he said he had never really read the books. Wait, so <laughs> Is that true? Yeah, he, he had not read the books. So I think maybe he had watched a few too many Little Women adaptations. And he's confusing Joe March with Anne Shirley. Because while we've talked about the ways that these two literary heroines are similar, they are not the same person. You can't just put Joe into Anne's story. Oh, man. All right, back to this movie. So partway through Anne's time in Kingsport, Anne runs into Gilbert in the park. Gilbert tells her he's in town for a medical conference, and somehow he is both looking for Anne, but also is surprised to run into her. More of that sloppy writing. Miss Stacy has apparently been keeping Gilbert up to date with all of Anne's doing in Kingsport, and the upshot of this interaction is that it's clear that they are both just delighted to see each other, but also that Gilbert specifically came to tell her that he is engaged to Christine with the wedding set for the summer. Anne shares that she has been offered a five-year contract at the school, and Gilbert tells Anne that she shouldn't give up on her writing. See, he's encouraging her. And she should even write stories about Avonlea. And so here, Gilbert even gets Mr. Harrison's great line from the book about changing the name so that way Mrs. Lynde doesn't think she's the main character. Anne responds that she doesn't think Avonlea is really the setting for an interesting story, and Gilbert tells her that it's his favorite place, and that he plans to bring Christine back from Halifax to live in Avonlea once they're married. He gives Anne a card that he had planned to mail to her, and he goes to catch his train. Anne opens the card, and it simply says, congrats on your success, Carrots, from your old chum, Gilbert. And the only success he seems to be referring to is, like, the school play. Well, now that we know it well, made $91,000. Now that we know it made $91,000. It's true. Because my first reaction, because at one point she's like, I hear you're doing so well in medical school. And he said, he goes, oh, that's nothing. I hear you put on a play. Like, the but now we know. Of all time. <laughs> And the whole thing is so weird. Like, if he hadn't bumped into Anne, was he ever going to tell her about that engagement? Like, why is he wandering through the park, like, assuming he's going to run into her? But this note does make Anne run to the train station to say thank you. Or, you know, really so that they can just sort of, like, gaze longingly at each other as the train pulls away. And, most importantly, it inspires her to go straight back to her room and start writing. Presumably about Avonlea. The implication now is that she started writing the book now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> she just started writing this book. She has unknown, but like what, three more months maybe left in Kingsport, but three more months, not only to finish the book, but to send it to a publisher who then edits it and sends back a single bound copy to Anne. Listen, you guys, cool. if you start looking too close at the timeline here, <laughs> things get real wonky because this scene in the park is like springish, right? Like it's yeah. kind yeah. of rainy and misty. But in a minute, we're going to get to a scene with Morgan Harris and it's still winter. Oh, I mean, God. I know Canadian <laughs> like climate is all funky. You so New Brunswick can go all over the place. But yeah. Yeah. If you start paying attention to the timeline in this movie, please. <laughs> all the logic flies right out the window. 
Yeah. And more importantly, we don't get the pink heart necklace. We don't get the lilies of the valley corsage. The card, in my opinion, just doesn't hit hard enough to spur this whole sea change in Anne, honestly. And again, they're kind of taking the lazy way out and they're making this just about jealousy like because gilbert is engaged to christine now Anne realizes that she loves him and trusts him and that's dumb <laughs> it's dumb <laughs> that he's engaged to christine christine was just his friend like four months ago and now they're engaged and they're about to be married so i don't know every month in this film is 10 years long <laughs> well which makes sense because they're taking seven years and they're trying to do it in 14 months so <laughs> yeah but I also think it's supposed to be something more than just jealousy because we have seen that the way Kevin Sullivan writes and jealous is she gets all cold and frosty and then storms off in a huff so something else is seems to be inspiring and to both chase him down and then to write but they didn't really do a good job of explaining why but now we can talk about Morgan Harris. So he's been chilling over here while Anne and Gilbert have been doing this. But for Morgan Harris, following the success of the play, real big success of the play, and Anne's tutoring of Emmeline, Morgan invites Anne to accompany his family to Boston for the winter holiday. So he's very rich and they have a wonderful time going to plays and being very fancy. And we see Mrs. Harris fight with Morgan about him not taking Emmeline to live with him, arguing that Emmeline should be with her father, which, yeah. And Anne comes in to assert to Morgan that same thing, that Emmeline desperately misses him and he needs to kind of step up. And Morgan seems to admire this about Anne. And honestly, right here, I get some Captain Von Trapp, Maria vibes, mm -hmm. where Anne is teaching him how important it is that his child loves him. I mean, I for one do enjoy the zaddy of it all. I'll go on an all expenses paid luxury trip with Morgan and his cute kid. I just don't think Anne ever would. Well, that's not Anne's romantic daydream. She did not have like rich governess slash stepmom on her like bucket list right no yeah no so here's a couple of my things that i think did inspire morgan harris professor bear from little women captain von trapp and daddy warbucks but you know who's not an inspiration roy gardner none of this is roy gardner <laughs> none of this is roy and honestly justice for roy he is an interesting character sort of sort of well, maybe <laughs> i mean let's not push it let's not get crazy here <laughs> So after they get back to Kingsport and presumably somewhere between after she has started writing her book, it's a little unclear the timeline, but there's a big charity ball and Anne is now included in all the social doings at Kingsport as a result of her winning over the Pringles. The what a best terrible prize, by the way. You stop being bullied by the small children and all you gain is more volunteer work. So honestly, awful. where does this woman have the time? <laughs> they invite her to come help and she's all like, let me show you how to fold the rosettes. And all the ladies are like, we have never folded a rosette before that's true that happens in this movie this movie is bananas <laughs> well all that rosette folding must have worked in something because the best thing about the scene is Anne wears the most gorgeous dress mm -hmm. and it is just covered in these folded silk roses and honestly it is the prettiest thing she ever wears in my opinion and then we get this moment that is this very specific callback to Gilbert. Anne sees Morgan talking to a wealthy, beautiful woman, overhears some gossip, assumes the worst, just as she did with Gilbert at the Christmas ball in the Green Gables adaptation. Because she continues to learn nothing. It's really important to Sullivan that Anne exactly. never learned anything. This is exactly what she did around the whole Christine Stewart situation at Diana's wedding. Mm -hmm. So true to form, Anne <laughs> runs off. Morgan chases after her. They argue as he explains that the woman is just a business associate, which he takes to charity balls, I guess. Anne accuses him of just wanting her to be Emmeline's governess. And he grabs Anne's arm saying, I won't lose you, Anne, surely. And then she kicks him. So <laughs> this is just like, it's 
It's the wildest scene. And then he gasps out that he was coming to propose to Anne and he wants her to move to Boston with him and Emmeline. So again, very out of the blue. We don't really get, we have no romantic buildup to this. Anne says that she's always dreamed of a moment like this. Oh, but yes, now the moment where she kicks the man who just proposed to her. The, the subject of all of Anne's daydreams, clearly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was a deleted it, scene from Avril's Atonement. Oh, yes. But then Anne says, well, she can't explain it, but I need to go home. So that's what she's rejecting. <laughs> she's rejecting Morgan Harris and his like fancy life in Boston because she realizes that, like her writing, she's actually most comfortable and happiest in a place like Avonlea. It's very, there's no place like home. But it's nothing to do with Morgan. This really changes Anne's arc. <laughs> we laugh, but we know that Anne's daydream proposals never involve being chased through the snow and then kicking her proposer. <laughs> I mean, she wanted epic poetry recited to her on a castle balcony, not something sort of half blurted out after she injured him. And as we said at the very top of this episode, there's no true romance with Morgan. There's no chemistry between these two people. You never get the sense that Anne is interested in him romantically at all up until the scene. They have this sort of enemies to friends to lovers arc that echoes Anne and Gilbert's arc. And it's different than Roy's more straightforward courtship and romance in the book. There's so much more similarity with the way that Anne argues and fights with Morgan like she does with Gilbert. And so the big contrast between those two relationships, honestly, is just like money and age and the fact that like Gilbert truly knows Anne and Morgan doesn't. It doesn't get to the root of Anne's growth regarding her romance and ideals. Honestly, I kind of wonder if this backs up my problems with the enemies to lovers trope because it's so often used as a shortcut to chemistry. And I think that's what they were trying to do here with Morgan. They had Anne and him bicker and argue, and that's supposed to indicate chemistry and attraction. But Roy would never have done that. I mean, okay, so maybe Roy's romance is kind of boring on the screen, or we wouldn't understand why Anne would choose Gilbert over Roy if Roy is too nice. I don't know. Well, think about it. Roy is handsome and melancholy and brooding and maybe on screen Roy would have been too tempting but I think they could have done it okay truly like all you would need is like one scene at Patty's place where Roy doesn't laugh at any of Phil's jokes and we would all know that he's not the right one for Anne that's so true and now I'm mad that we've never gotten an actual Anne of the Island adaptation so Hollywood mm -hmm. call us we're your girls we'll help you all right, so we're going to wind up the Harris storyline with Mrs. Harris dying and finally, Pauline, finally, honestly, <laughs> and Pauline, her poor put upon daughter being able to accept a proposal, much like in the story of Janet Sweet in Anne of the Island. Morgan and Emmeline are moving back to Boston, so no hard feelings. <laughs> then we fast forward to the end of the school year. Again, like the timeline, we have to squeeze in all this redemption of mean and bitter Catherine Brooke in this very short period of time that we have left. Anne tenders her resignation to the school that she now intends to go back to Green Gables to write instead of accepting that five-year contract. And I think this is like a weird barrier to put up for Anne because we just saw that she wrote a whole book while teaching in Kingsport. So it's not like she couldn't write and teach at the same time. This is all just feels very forced. And I do wonder sometimes about the parallelism happening here. It's not explicitly drawn out, but Miss Stacy has elected to have a career, right? And a life as a working professional woman and 
again to not marry. And for Miss Stacy, especially because she's in the education system where there are no married women, that's a decision she makes. And so that five-year contract is so interesting to me. It's such a specific amount of time. And it would take Anne basically entirely out of kind of like the marriage pool for her generation of young women and set her on that course to follow Miss Stacy. And, you know, they never say it because the mentorship with Miss Stacy is completely dissolved by this point. I don't think we see Miss Stacy again for the rest of the film. But it is interesting. Like five years is such an awfully long period of time. It's not just come back for next year. It's sort of like this is your path if you take it. Anyway, Anne invites Catherine to visit Green Gables for the summer. There is this great line straight from the book, Catherine Brooke, what you want is a good spanking. We all agree that Miss Brooke is hot for Anne, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? This makes a lot of sense for the way they characterized her. Do you guys notice that like once she's friendly with Anne, she gets all like weird and flirty and like coquettish. Like she's literally batting her eyes at her while eating an apple. Yeah, 100%. I do think that Catherine probably is not super interested in guys. So that might also. She's absolutely not. She's (laughs) looking for a Boston marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Well, And I think that is text in the book, not the Boston marriage part. But I think at some point (laughs) she's basically said, oh, yeah, I'm not interested in men. I think men are dumb. She maybe doesn't say dumb, but she is very specific about. Yeah, no, she is specific. I Yeah, I think that it might not be text, but it's definitely subtext in the books. Agreed. It's really sad, you guys, because Catherine Brooke and her and her redemption arc in Anne of Windy Poplars is, I think, one of the finest moments in that book. And it's completely truncated in this movie. And all we kind of get is these brief few moments where Catherine confesses her bitterness to Anne while they're at Green Gables. But we don't get into her backstory at all, really, certainly not as much as we do in the book. And it just doesn't hit as hard as in the book, right? You don't get the moment between the two of them where they realize that they are two halves of the same whole two people who had these incredibly terrible childhoods, but Anne was saved by love in a way that Catherine never was. So, you know, it's too bad. They never talk about it in the film. It's so weird. There's at least two separate occasions where Catherine brings up having been an orphan and having missed out on family relationships and having missed out on the concept of a home. Mm -hmm. And at no point does Anne say like, this came to me much later in life than you're imagining. I had a similar background. I understand what you're describing. She just looks Well, and I think the important thing that happens in the book is because once Anne shares her story with Catherine, that helps Catherine trust Anne. When Anne tells her, you can be optimistic, people can love you now, things can change for you, she can speak from this place of experience. I know what it's like to feel like the world is terrible and that you are alone, but it doesn't have to be that way forever. Whereas here, she's all, yep, but now we're friends, so cool. And the movie also robs us of seeing a very beautiful friendship with Anne and Catherine. So then what happens next is Anne, Catherine, and Marilla go visit Diana and her new baby, little Fred Jr. And Minnie Mae drops the bomb that Gilbert is dying. I love this scene so much because <laughs> Anne's like, what? Gilbert's dying? And everybody's like, oh, we weren't going to tell you yet. It's we like, tell you. you. <laughs> love the idea that Marilla's just been walking around with this bomb and being like, you know what? You know what the best way for you to find out? By surprise. <laughs> From a six-year-old. Or what? At his funeral? Like, what What do they think the end game is? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Anyway, they have switched it. So now he is dying from scarlet fever instead of typhoid. And I think this is just now we understand the difference between scarlet fever and typhoid. So scarlet fever is contagious from coughs and sneezes. It is caused by the same strep bacteria that causes strep throat. And typhoid comes from infected feces contaminating drinking water or food. So the more you know. But let us continue on. We could do this, ladies. 
Anne <laughs> confesses her feelings about Gilbert to Marilla, and Marilla comforts her. And that's where Anne shows Marilla the first edition of her book and shows her the inscription that says, To Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert, for their unfailing love and support, and to Gilbert Blythe, who inspired me with the idea in the first place. Anne gets to see Gilbert on his sickbed, questionable. She shows him her book, saying that she was going to surprise him with it for his wedding, but she wants to show him now, telling him how he inspired her to write it. He confesses that he broke his engagement to Christine, saying that there won't be a wedding because it wouldn't be fair to Christine. In a line that makes us swoon every time, quote, there will never be anyone for me but you. And Anne holds his hand to her cheek. Well then, much like the book, we cut from this very touching moment to some time later in which Gilbert is showing up to Green Gables to ask Anne to go for a walk down the lane. Quick timeline interjection here. God knows how long it takes him to get over it, but it's long enough that the book goes into a second printing <laughs> right. while he's recovering from Scarlet Fever. But Catherine book is still there at the house. Oh, and it's still summer. It's still, it's summer. still summer. So again, guys, don't look too closely at any of these moments. Just that, that just book take it. Smash. I mean, maybe Canadian printing is very, very speedy. <laughs> but anyway, it's been a little bit because Anne compliments him on how robust he looks. And so then have they not seen each other since this like sick bed? reconciliation? Have they not talked to each other since then? Honestly, unclear. So Anne says she can't go for a walk because she and Catherine are going to a bonfire that evening. And Catherine is very, very nervous about boys being in a bonfire. But she does offer to walk him back across the pond instead. And honestly, if they were going to do the proposal then, just why bother with this whole, oh no, I can't go for a walk with you. We're going to a bonfire. Just say, yes, I'd love to go for a walk with you. This is the thing they're going to stay true to from the book. <laughs> It's silly. It's just silliness. So they walk to the bridge. And while they're on the bridge, Gilbert tells her that he read her book and it's really good. And Anne says that it took her a long time to learn that Gilbert was right. And I'm assuming that's about writing close to home. She tells him that she's going to stay here at Green Gables and write. And she says, I went looking for my ideals outside of myself. It's not what the world holds for you. It's what you bring to it. The dreams dearest to my heart are right here. And like, did they steal that from the Wizard of Oz? Because... <laughs> Again, is that really Anne's arc from the book? It's not exactly. Like, she hasn't been framing this whole adventure as looking for her ideals outside of herself. Anne's problem has always been she's got too many ideals inside of herself. Anne loves PEI. She loves Avonlea. She loves the people there. That is her home. Well, then we get to the proposal, which, again, actually isn't a full proposal because Gilbert just takes her hand right then and jumps straight into, it'll be three years before I finish medical school. And even then, there will be no diamond and sunbursts and marble halls. Mm. And of course, Anne says she doesn't want diamond sunbursts or marble halls. She just wants him. And then they kiss. And mm. this is the reason why I watch all four hours <laughs> of this movie full of very large plot holes and weird thematic changes just to see this moment beautifully shot on the screen. And then the end. And now it's fall because there's fall leaves in the background, but it's the end of summer. Brenna, is this true for Canada. What happens in Canada? Yes. So in the Maritimes, early fall leaves come late August, early September. We always plan our Halloween costumes so you can accommodate a snowsuit and boots without losing your vibe. It's really important. It's hard to do. Yeah. It was 82 here on Halloween. Our big problem is the exact opposite where all of the Halloween costumes are long sleeved and my child is boiling in them. Yeah. <laughs> my kid had a tiger costume on and under the tiger costume, a t-shirt, a hoodie, and a fleece. 
and the tiger costume <laughs> done up over top. Well, Michelin tiger. Oh, <laughs> could he bend his arms? No, no. Okay. <laughs> Just walked around with his buckets outstretched. Exactly. <laughs> okay, Reagan, this is making me think when we're talking about sort of how beautifully shot this moment is where the two of them are on the bridge and they're holding hands and it's so romantic. This makes me think of your wedding pictures. Oh, thank you. When Reagan <laughs> did her like first look pictures or whatever at her wedding, she and her husband took a bunch of pictures over this very cute little bridge over a stream and it is straight smoothie. Okay, ladies, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> this mini series is such a mess. I mean, there are some really lovely moments in it. Colleen Dewhurst, of course, is a treasure every second that Marilla is on screen. Megan Follows and Jonathan Crombie really sell their chemistry and the relationship between Anne and Gilbert. And I feel like that just kind of papers over all the cracks in the plot and the themes for me anyway. I think that I thought this movie was bad in the 90s, but then I forgive a lot of things in retrospect because continuing story is so truly bad shit. We shall not go into the true travesty that is the continuing story <laughs> because they have completely lost the plot by then. Absolutely. <laughs> For our Inspired by Anne segment, we are actually going to do something extra special. We thought it would be fun to present our very first KSBC holiday gift guide. Since we are all about a month out from Christmas when this episode is releasing, we thought it would be a great time to give you some inspiration for your holiday gift giving. And we have a roundup of fun bookish gifts as well as things we think your kids and dogs and partners would also really dig. Okay, this is why we all met on the Fancy Soap Forum was the recommendations. This is how we all get connected is we all wanted to recommend our favorite fancy soaps <laughs> to each other and, and get recommendations. This to join us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm just going to like kick us off. Marilla's famous yellow plum preserves that she keeps especially for ministers was my inspiration here. And so what I thought would be a really fun gift, and this could be a little twist on your typical hostess gift. What if we brought instead plum jam or another specialty jam in a really beautiful jar or otherwise like dressed up really beautifully? That would really sort of take that hostess gift and elevate it. So I would recommend looking for whatever's local. Here in LA, we have a jam maker called Squirrel, which is great. But even a really pretty jar of like Bomba Man would be good, I think. Plum jam, you guys. Follow Marilla. She knows what she's doing. <laughs> well, last year, Kelly gave me a Bon Maman advent calendar with 24 tiny itty bitty jars of fancy jam. Best gift. I got it again for myself this year. And I also got a David's Tea advent calendar. Shout out to Brenna for that one because she told me about David's Tea like 20 years ago and I still love them. <laughs> Amazing. I do have one gift idea for your dogs. I am the resident dog mom. And so, of course, my dogs have to have fancy stockings. There's this company called Polka Dog, and they have very cutely packaged dog things and good quality, all natural, all of this stuff. But specifically, this is a can of cod skins, which I feel like connects to Anna Fring Gables because it's like in the Maritimes. <laughs> like, okay. Uh... I don't know. In my mind, there's a connection there. Okay. Brenna sure. is side eyeing me so hard. <laughs> These are definitely too pricey for every day. Like a little can of them is $13, but it is a very cute holiday treat. So here is a recommendation that is inspired, if you guys remember from Windy Poplar's, our favorite Captain Abraham and Captain Myram Pringle, which is the book The Wager by David Gran. And the guys in your life, not to be gender essentialist, because if you're a woman, you will also love this too. But both of our husbands read this and loved it. And it's a page turning story of shipwreck, survival and savagery with a big court martial scene that reveals the shocking truth, showing that it was not only the captain and the crew who ended up on trial, but the very idea of empire. 
nightmares. I can't guarantee that there is going to be an Uncle Myram like bout of cannibalism in this, but I also cannot <laughs> guarantee that this book doesn't have cannibalism in it. Okay, I have two recommendations for kind of bookish t-shirts. I went with two places that I think are both really cute. They're also size inclusive designs. Both of them carry t-shirts and stuff up to a 5X, which I think is really important. You know, it's much more fun when we can all wear the same clothes from the same places. So I would look up Book Babe Design Shop and Chapter Catchers, which they are hosted by Etsy. In both cases, these are like one woman shows where they're doing all the design and production of the t-shirts themselves. Super cute, very unique, kind of fun, retro, vintage vibes. So definitely check out both of those if you need to add to your bookish t-shirt collections. Another gift great for the bookish people in your life is The Art of Jane Mount on Ideal Bookshelf. And if you guys remember, this was my very favorite present that I got last year. You can get a custom print made of your favorite books, or she has lots of prints that are already pre-made on themes with books from middle grade books or childhood classics up to favorite feminist books or favorite cookbooks. The art is great. She's got a ton of other stuff great bookish goodies on the Ideal Bookshelf website. So highly recommend. Other favorite things for the book readers in your life are either a reading journal or some other kind of reading tracker. I've been really impressed by the Novelly Yours reading tracker journal because you don't have to necessarily write reviews if you don't want to, which is where I tend to get Ooh, stuck. You yeah, can kind of, that. yeah, you can kind of track it. She's got all different ways for you to track it by coloring things in or listing things by different cool. themes. Yeah. So it's really very pretty. And she does a lot more where it's kind of around gathering your data around reading in some aesthetically pleasing ways, but you don't have to write a long review if you don't want to. Oh, that's very cool. So thinking about like more Anne related things, I got it into my head that what we really need to be giving for Christmas this year are decanters for our raspberry cordial. And I don't have any like <laughs> specific decanter recommendations here, but I do think that obviously check like Etsy or eBay or anything for vintage. The glassmaker Simon Pierce would be a really good source for this. But I also think like go thrifting or go to a flea market and see what you can find. I feel like giving like a beautiful decanter and then maybe, I don't know, a shrub or some sort of really nice spirit or whatever you know that your recipient really likes to drink would be a very cute gift. And then I saw these on Etsy recently, book wine charms. So they're like little tile wine charms and they have book covers on them. So I think that would be very adorable for the folks who may be in your book club. And you can also customize them to your favorite books or maybe books that your book club has read. So that's on Ascend Tiles, sort of like Essentials, but Ascend Tiles on Etsy. Check that one out. I also put down, thinking around the same thing, these Fancy Simple Syrups by Meadowland. And you can find them directly from the Meadowland website, but they also sell them various places. And there are all these fancy infused simple syrups that you can add to make cocktails or add them to your coffee or soda water to make fancy drinks. And they've got a winter-themed set that looks particularly really good with the sugar plum syrup in it that looks amazing. Okay, so you guys know we are always recommending candles to you. So here's what I was thinking. Instead of getting your friend or your mom or whoever a candle because she already has one and she already knows what scent she likes get her a candle accessory set get her something with a little wick trimmer and a snuffer a wick dipper which is like the thing you put in to rescue a wick that might have fallen into the wax and I think that also is like a very Victorian aesthetic so you know fits in with sort of the Anne world you know that Anne definitely had a little candle accessory set on her bedside table I think this is like a nice alternative to kind of the typical candle gift 
I've got a couple of cute ideas for the kids in your life. These are two things that are very much into this sort of imaginative play realm, also kind of like a vintage aesthetic. So one idea is from a website called Mama Owl is a linen celebration crown, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a little crown. It's made out of like stiff linen. It has beautiful embroidery all around it. It is vintage, rustic, woodland looking straight out of Avonlea childhood for sure. Okay, Um, Kelly. This is very much an anti-gift because I looked at them. Those linen crowns, bless your heart, they're 50 bucks. So clearly, (laughs) as the two mothers on the pod, Brenna. Reagan, you you only get 18 Christmases. (laughs) No, no, no. The kind of tiaras we had in our house, you get from the dollar store. You get from the dollar store. My other sort of imaginative play, and this is not an auntie gift, this is a reasonably priced gift, but other sort of imaginative play idea that I think Kid Anne would have absolutely loved are handmade silk scarves and rainbow wands. You can find these in a lot of different places. I like this website called Sarah's Silks, but you can literally find like a rainbow wand on Amazon. The idea is that it's just like a wand with like a big long rainbow ribbon on it and it's so fun and younger kids just love that stuff. To be fair, Kelly did buy a rainbow wand for Alice a couple of years ago and that was a big hit and she did use it for a really long time and we probably still have it. That gift I give to a lot of my friends' kids and it does not matter what the gender of the kid is. It does not matter like what they're into. Every kid just wants a little wand to wave around in the air. Oh, we're a house full of wands. Yeah, you don't have to, you don't have to sell me on it. Okay, well, here's my kid suggestion is I'm going to suggest a slack line, which Alice got for her birthday recently, and it is a huge hit with all of the kids in the neighborhood. So a slack line is basically like learning to walk a tightrope, except a slack line is a wide piece of webbing. And the kit that we got comes with a way to ratchet it tight between two trees or two sturdy poles or something like that. And then it also comes with a trainer line, which you string up above head height, and they kind of have like a little rope that you throw over the trainer line to help you. You hold on to it with your hands and you can balance and learn to walk a tightrope. This is a huge hit with all the kids in the neighborhood. The slack line takes five minutes for us to put up and all the kids in the neighborhood come running to do it. It has kept all of them extremely busy. And I think Anne should have practiced with one of these before walking the ridge pole. She would have gotten a lot further. Another thing that I feel like I've been seeing everywhere lately are charm bracelets. I think they're back. Mm. I don't know. I'm 41, so I might not have any idea what I'm talking about. And I keep thinking this would be a really great gift either for like a special kid in your life or for your best girlfriend or your sister, your wife or girlfriend or whoever, because it's so customizable. And you can really Mm. do this at like any price point, right? There's a jeweler named John Wind who will do a custom charm bracelet for about $200. And if you do want to do that, I would advise doing that soon because there's a little bit of a lead time. But you You could DIY this from a craft store. You could go to a local jeweler and come up with some custom charms. Sky's the limit there. And nearby us in Southern California, I'm just going to shout out a store called Brooklyn Charm, which is in Ventura. And the whole store only just sells charms and at every price point, every size. And that is a really fun store that'll just make a bracelet or a necklace for you while you wait. My last, this I think is going to work for everyone on your list. Get everybody a basket with a plant in it. There's your beautiful, like, homey Anne of Avonlea vibes and also all your cool plant zaddy vibes. This is the gift that you're going to give everybody. You can give this to your parents. You can give this to your spouse. You can give this to your, like, work girlies. Give everybody a cool plant 
in a cool basket. This is what you're going to do. Plants and baskets. Also, Chuck, my husband, if you're listening, this is what I want for Christmas. I want more plants <laughs> and baskets. Brenna, do you have any good suggestions for, especially because you've got a younger kiddo, do you have any good suggestions that are not $50 crowns? Wow. <laughs> yeah, shooting on the $50 crowns. <laughs> I feel very boring because the only thing I brought was if you're introducing Anne to younger readers in your life. I don't know if you guys have talked about the most recent uh, comic adaptation of Anne. Have you guys talked about that? We did the graphic novels ones. No, the the most recent one, the Kathleen Gross one. It's an yes. it's not really like it's yeah. Or it's like it's a great. contemporary update. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really really great, and one. it's nice because kids can feel pretty distant from the language of Anne of Green Gables. So I always think introducing them to the story first in a way that's maybe a little bit more accessible to them is helpful, and uh, that doesn't always have to be the film. So there's actually a bunch of adaptations out now like this, but I think the Kathleen Gross is particularly good. Well, you guys, I'm disappointed in us that we didn't have any soap recommendations (laughs) oh no ASBC gift guide but we'll do better next year I promise (laughs) (laughs) Brenna thank you so much for joining us this has been such a blast I love that we got to do like an old-fashioned snark fest on this movie a little bit (laughs) (laughs) this was truly fun thank you so much for inviting me you know what so we are going to send you a sticker to say thank you for doing this with us and actually for (laughs) listeners if you want your own sticker you can get one for free if you leave us a review or share about us on social media and then you can just email us at kindredspirits.bookclub at gmail.com or dm us on instagram at kindredspirits.bookclub with your address and we will send you a sticker for free so you can be like all of us cool kids brenna where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you Oh, that's lovely. Um, Well, you should totally listen to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. We do have a singular Anne episode uh, where we look at the Anne with an E adaptation in particular. So yeah, uh, you can check that out. And then I'm on many social media at Brenna C. Gray. I'm most active on Instagram and Blue Sky. Amazing. So listeners, please join us next episode as we start to wind down our second season. And we're going to be discussing The Blue Castle, Ella Montgomery's beautiful standalone novel that might Mind some of these same themes of young womanhood that we've been talking about with these more recent Anne books. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, everyone. 